Well, in the, uh, the late 1980s, a, a controversy broke out in uh, the evangelical church, and it had to do with uh, the gospel, had to do with the content of the gospel, had to do with the meaning of faith, the meaning of repentance, had to do with the place of works in salvation, had to do with uh, the lordship of Christ. In fact, this controversy was simply became known as the lordship controversy. And uh, really, a lot of it had been stirring for quite some time, and it, it all came to, um, to a head when uh, John MacArthur wrote this book called The Gospel According to Jesus. And I happened to read this book, I think it was 1988, I read this book and um, really, really helped me immensely in terms of understanding just what a, what a Christian is. And, and MacArthur says basically that when, when someone comes to faith in Christ, he will follow his Lord, right? The, the Lordship of Christ. He'll, he'll follow in obedience to his Lord. That's why it's called Lordship Salvation or Lordship Controversy. In other words, following Jesus means, catch this, following Jesus means following Jesus. It means walking after him, pursuing his ways. It means seeking his face. It means submitting your life to, to Jesus. And, and if you believe in Jesus, your life will demonstrate that indeed you do believe in Christ. And, and, and MacArthur was attacked for this book, by the way. He was attacked from, by many in the evangelical world, worlds, so he was advocating a work-centered gospel. Um, several people, I remember, said that we're, he's taking us back to Rome, meaning the Roman Catholic Church, where it's, it's heavy-centered on works. And um, that, of course, would be heresy, to say that it's a work-centered gospel, because works doesn't save you. Right? You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in, in Christ alone. Arthur has never denied that at all. He, he would never deny that, never denied it in this book. He simply put forth the straightforward truth that though you are saved by faith alone, that faith which saves is never alone. Right? It will always give evidence through good works. Your faith will, right? And, and we know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, hopefully you know verse 10, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're saved by grace alone. Paul couldn't be clearer of that. But then he says it will evidence itself in the good works that God has prepared for us to do. Now, as clear as that might seem to all of us here this morning, I think we've been well taught in that is why it, it, it seems very clear is because... Um, it's, it's just true. It just falls right out of Scripture. I was just saying this. Many in the evangelical world back then and even still today take issue, took issue with MacArthur. And it took him by surprise. Five years later, the second edition of his book came out. Listen to what he wrote in the preface. He said, It was not my intention to ignite such a dispute. My aim was simply to answer several recent authors who were arguing for no lordship evangelism. These men were charging the rest of the church with heresy. And I felt their accusation needed an answer. Of course, I hoped that what I had to say was widely read and discussed, but I admit that I was unprepared for the intense and far-reaching debate that ultimately ensued. And see, those who, who opposed MacArthur advocated that you believe in Jesus for salvation as your Savior, and then you follow Him, like in a second step, later as Lord of your life for discipleship. Kind of like a two-stage um, Christian life. 
Um, and you see that in several other circles where it's a higher blessing sort of thing. Like you become a Christian and then you get indwelt by the Spirit and speak in tongues and things like that. But this is, no, we, we come first to Savior and then we later possibly, maybe probably, potentially follow Jesus as Lord, as a disciple of Jesus. Second step, if, if you will. And the opposition continues today, though it's much smaller today because the Scriptures are so plain of of lordship salvation. Now, I, I do believe that many of those who um, uh, have opposed MacArthur are doing so with good motives, seeking to preserve the grace of God in the gospel. I mean, I, I see that. These are good men. These are followers of Jesus, mostly who, who do this. But they just miss the truth of Jesus. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And, and what they would say is that they would say, no, no, that's, that's following him as, as Lord to discipleship, not salvation. Or they miss the preaching of Peter. Remember when he said, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And they say repentance, the Greek word metanoia, meta change noia, mind to thinking, to change your mind. It just means a change of mind. So just change who you think Jesus is. In fact, Charles Ryrie, one of the main opponents of MacArthur, wrote this. Change your minds about Jesus of Nazareth. Whatever you thought he was, change your minds and now believe that he is God and he is your Messiah who died and rose from the dead. That's the repentance that saves. So no discussion about repentance from sins. It's all about repentance like of how you see and view Jesus. And those who oppose MacArthur miss Paul's statement in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so that what they say is that, no, that when you confess Jesus as Lord, you're, you're, you're confessing him as the sovereign Lord of everything. You're not confessing him as your own personal Lord, as if you can follow the Lordship of Jesus, but have your own Lord here, but just acknowledge the sovereign. It's just crazy uh, what, what people believe. And, and really, the question is this. If you're saved, will your life reflect it? Or from the other side, can you be safe in your sin with no change in your behavior? Well, as we open our Bibles this morning, I invite you to to 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. We're going to see that this is the very question that our text is answering for us this morning. 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. And it's going to be with crystal clarity. It's going to tell us that those who know God will show it in their lives. If you know God, you'll show it. Show it by obedience, show it by how, how you live. And, and you, you might think about it this way. What's characteristic of a fish? Pretty, a fish swims, has scales, lives under the water, right? Has scales and swims, right? Now, now if it doesn't have fins and scales and breathe underwater through its gills, it's not a fish. I don't care what you call it. It's not a fish. You may say, I've got my pet hamster here. My pet hamster, this is a fish. <laughs> I don't care. You can say it till you're blue in the face. That pet hamster is not a fish. Or a duck, right? A duck waddles and quacks and has feathers. And, and you can say till you're blue in the face about your dog, this is a duck. But it barks, it doesn't quack. It doesn't swim real well, like on a dog paddle. Right? It doesn't have any feathers. Your duck is not a dog. It doesn't matter what you're calling it. And so likewise with a Christian. A Christian, what, what's a believer? What's someone who knows Jesus? 
He obeys God's commandments and he follows in his ways. And I don't care what you call yourself, if you're not obeying God and following in his ways, you can call yourself a Christian, but you're not a Christian any more than a hamster is a fish. Because those two things are like prominent and evident in anyone who believes in Christ. That's exactly what our text is saying this morning. It shows those who, who know Christ. It, they'll be evident in them because they will, will show it. You can see it. My message this morning is, called, is entitled, Show That You Know Him. By the way, a little plug for small groups. That came out of our small group discussion last Sunday night. And for those of you who were there, you know it came out of the mouth of a teenager who was just processing through this stuff. She said, it wasn't my daughter. Uh, this is Aisha Spates. The Spates aren't here today. Said, oh, it's like, like showing that you know him. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a great title. As we were working through things. So thank you for those of you who attend my small group. Help me on my message for next Sunday tonight. But any, anyway, they show that you know him. That's really the application of the text. The text really doesn't say that. The text says, if you know him, you will show him. And I'm just flipping that. I'm, just, I'm exhorting you. I'm saying, show that you know him. Show that you know him. So here we are. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. I want you to ask yourself, what do these verses say about those who know God? I think it's real clear. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I see two characteristics here of those who know God. First is that they keep His commandments. You see that in verse 3. If we keep His commandments. Verse 4, a liar does not keep His commandments. In verse 5, there it is. He keeps His word. That same thing. Keeping the commandments. Keeping the commandments. Keeping the word. That's characteristic of a, of a believer. And second one is that they walk as Jesus walked. In verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. If you say that you abide in him, if you say you're a Christian, you ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. These two observations are going to be my application point. And again, the text is more of, of an observational character. Right? It, the, the text says, if you know him, it'll show up in these two areas. And I'm turning, I'm just saying, show that you know him. By obeying Him and by imitating Him. Obey Him and follow Him. Obey Him and imitate Him. Right, let's look at our first point. Obey Him. This is the first three verses, right? Look again here in verse 3. This is clear as day. And by this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. You want to know if you know Jesus? You just ask yourself, okay, do I keep His commandments? Do I do what He says? Because those who know Him... Obey Him. It couldn't be any clearer. I mean, that, that's what verse 3 says. Verse 4 says the same thing from the negative perspective. Exact same, almost parallel. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. In other words, if you claim to know Jesus, but fail to obey Jesus, you're a liar. You're a liar. The truth is not in you. It's like claiming to be a fish when you can't swim. It's like claiming to be a duck without quacking. It's like claiming to be a Christian without following in God's ways. 
I mean, it, it can't be any clearer than that. Why this lordship controversy has arisen, I, I just can't understand. This text is so clear. And surely you have encountered these sorts of people. Let me just say, they're everywhere. They are people, some of these people never walk into a church, aren't involved in a church, never go to a church because they think that their religion is okay just between them and God. They, they claim to be a Christian um, but they have no need for church. Forget the fact that Jesus is building His church and all of His people are part of His church and we have a call in Scripture to assemble together. There's no assembly. And I don't care. They can say that they know Him, but if they're not obeying His command. But there are often these people who have been exposed to church, maybe they're hurt by a church, maybe grow up as a child in church, maybe been exposed to some Sunday school program or an after school program like we're doing at the kids club, like know enough about Jesus, like, hey, that's a good thing. I should say I'm part of Jesus because he's got the keys to heaven and hell and I want to be on his side. So I'm going to do that. But I'm just living my life over here. And someone confronts me and talks to me. Oh, I'm going to, I know enough that I, I'm, yes, I'm a Christian over here, but, but they don't walk in those ways. They don't assemble, they don't love the people of God, they don't follow in His ways, they, they claim to be Christian. And these people are everywhere all across our nation. They're living next door to you. They're living two doors down and five doors down. They work with you. Lots of people profess to be Christian and yet they're, they're not obeying God. Now some of these people who claim to be Christians but are not even go to church. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the testimony of yeah, I grew up in church, went to church my whole life, was really involved in church and uh, served church. I claimed to know Jesus. I sang the songs and, and I was there. But, but only later did I really see who Christ was. And it was that point that God really changed my life. And suddenly I had a passion to obey the Lord, a passion that I had never known before. Before I was just playing religion, but now I have a heart to follow God. That's Andy Krause's testimony, and it's First John that has brought us there. And, and that's the danger where we are, of being in the church, but just playing church. Right? Putting, on a, putting on a church smiley face, but when you get home, going about your, your business, which has nothing to do with God. I've heard of people going to seminary to study for the ministry, to be pastors. And in the midst of seminary, the power of the word is so hard, so strong that it pierces the heart. And as they see who Jesus is, they say, that, I did never knew that before. I never knew him. And they come to Christ while preparing for the ministry. God works in amazing ways. <clears throat> and this morning, it may be you. You may be sitting here Sunday morning. You may be coming and you don't know Jesus. You, you, may, you may be so consistent that you sit in the same pew every Sundays. And in fact, even the cushions might have your indentation on it, if you know what I mean. Because you sit in the same place. And it may be you're lost. You may fail the obedience test. Oh, you, you may say, Jesus is Lord on, on the outside, putting up a nice show. You might sing the loudest of anybody. But it, it's not about... It's not about the show. It's about when you're alone. Are you obeying God? It's when your true self comes out. Obedience to God might be the furthest thing from your mind. And Jesus has a word for you. He said in Luke chapter 46, the Sermon on the Plain, which is much like the Sermon on the Mount, same sermon, different places, because he was an evangelist. He said this. He said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
yes, Jesus is my Lord, but I'm doing this thing over here. And Jesus said, it doesn't make any sense at all. And then he continued on. He says, um, let me tell you what these people are like. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. So that's one who hears and obeys and keeps God's word. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, that's like the one who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments. It's talking about verse 4. Is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Now, now, on the outside, both these houses looked alike. Uh, we don't know of any construction different, but they also, both were professing Christians. But well, one was built upon a different foundation. You say, okay, so what foundation? I think one was built upon the reality of the real Jesus. And the other was built on the, the security of one's profession. And, and a profession is meaningless unless it's backed up by a true trust in Christ. And when the storm comes, the foundation will be exposed. You, the reality of your faith or non-faith will, will be exposed. One is solid, squarely on the risen Lord, trusting in Jesus, and one is flimsy, just trusting in your church attendance or going. I mean, talk about what is really works. That's really the works, where people are trusting in their, their good works without any substance. I just say this, if, if you're here this morning without a foundation, just cry out to Christ. Seek Him. Pursue His ways. Repent and turn from your false words. Turn away from pretending. Turn away from your show and turn to Jesus. And show your trust in Him by obeying, right? Show that you know Him right? by obedience, by obeying Him. When you come to Jesus and know Jesus something marvelous takes place. What takes place is verse 5. Look at this. Whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. (laughs) Think about that. God's love is perfected when you keep his word. You think, isn't God's love perfect? Well, yes, it's perfect, but it's perfected. That is, it, it comes to its proper and natural and intended end. See, see, God's love isn't so much that it just kind of comes down upon us. His love comes down upon us to sweep us away into obedience. And when God's love does that and works itself out, it's here what's called perfected, or it, it brings to an end, or it brings to a, a completed state. Now, it's interesting here in 1 John. 1 John, by the way, talks about all these themes over and over and over again. My challenge in preaching through this book is going to be to be interesting and not say the same thing every week because here it comes. I want to show you another passage that says almost exactly the same thing in a bigger, in a bigger passage. So in a couple months when I, when I come to this passage, just, just think that oh yeah, I don't remember at all what Pastor Steve said two months ago because I'll say almost the same thing. Chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. They're almost exactly like our text, only the application here is not obedience, but it's love. So just if you put love in there rather than obedience, you're going to come up with exactly the same thing. Because our text this morning goes like this. If you obey God, you know God. Or or you'll know that you know God if you obey God. And if you're not obeying, you're not knowing God. 
And the text here says this, says, if you love, you know God. So in other words, if you love God, you will love others. If you know God, you'll love others. If you don't know God, you will not love others. And love is the expression exactly the same as obedience. L- look at how parallel it is. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another, like the call of obedience, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So show that you know him by your love. That's exactly what verse 7 says. That, that love comes from God, and whoever knows God has been born of God loves. Now the opposite, the negative, just like verse 4 of our text today says in verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If you don't love then you don't know God because knowing God means that you, you love God. And verses 9 and 10, okay, describe the love of God. This is where the gospel is not assumed. Here's where it's going to get real clear what the gospel is. In this is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. Okay, this is the love of God we're talking about. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. God sent His Son so we through Him can live In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, now there is the Gospel. There it is, that God sent His Son into the world for us to die on the cross for our sins, or as verse 10 says, to be our, what is it? Be our propitiation, which we talked about last week, right? This great word which is worth the price of a seminary. Education. It says, the wrath that was meant for me fell all upon Jesus, and now God in us is completely satisfied with His sacrifice. There's no longer, He is no longer filled with righteous anger against us because Jesus satisfied all that righteous anger, and instead we don't get wrath, we get love. That's propitiation. That's verse 10. And, and notice, again, it's not because we are so good or we are so lovely, as verse 10 says. It's not that we love God so much that, oh, you love me so much, I'm going to do this for you. No, it's, it's that God's love was taking the initiative. It was His love for us that did it, right? In this is love. Not that we love God. It's not upward. It is downward that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for His sins. And then as verse 11 says, here's the implication. Right? If God's love is coming down on us, right? Beloved, right? If, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And, and, and there it is, right? That, that ought word. This is to be expected of us. This is what we should do, right? If we keep His word, right? And, and we will see that even in verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way that He walks. If we're connected to the vine, we're connected to Jesus, we will walk in the way that He has us to walk. And, here it is, His love then is perfected in us. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. It's the same idea of chapter 2, verse 5, that, that when we love one another, it's a sign that God is working in us. Indeed, it's a sign that God's love is perfected in us because God's love doesn't end on us. God's love is intended to work through us into other people and be perfected as we love other people. That's what chapter 4, verse 12 says. And that's what chapter 2, verse 5 says. Whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfect. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? That, that we can perfect God's love. That's amazing. God's love, 
is there. And we perfect it when we love others and when we obey God. That'll startle your socks if you, you think about that. Well, it all comes together in chapter 5, verse 3. We talk about love. We talk about obedience. Here's where love and obedience come together. This is the love of God. Okay, what is the love of God? The love of God is that we keep His commandments. There it is. Love, keeping commandments, coming right together. That is the love of God, that we love others and that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. If you love God, you'll keep His commandments. His commandments are not going to be hard for you. They're going to be a delight. It's like a good marriage. Husbands, when your wife asks you to do something, is it a burden? Or is it a blessing? And true love will see that as a, as a blessing. Genuine deep love will see it as, as no burden at all. So we're driving on the way to church this morning. And on our right window on the... Is it the Perryville path? Maybe it's, it's on the other side. Of the, walking up Perryville, there was a guy... And uh, he had in his front pouch a baby, kind of walking along. And he's not like he's got exercise clothes. He's not like, you know, not jogging, not, not, not doing the run-walk kind of thing with a baby there, right? He's got this baby, and Yvonne made the comment. He's like something like, oh, there's a good husband. He's probably taking this, this uh, fussy baby outside to kind of bounce it around and to give it a... Give it a hike. And you can just envision, whether this happened or not, I, I don't know, it really doesn't matter. But envision for me, if you will, this tired mom who's been up feeding this baby, not quite, and, and just tired, and just said, can you just calm her down? He says, okay. And quietly, he takes the baby, puts it in the front pouch, and kind of walks it in it. And pretty soon the baby's going to be, you know, in that neck, the kind of all around like that, how, how they do that, I'm not sure, but that, that's not a burden for a husband who genuinely loves his wife and wants to care for her. Think about how many love songs are written about this. The boy makes great sacrifice for the girl and he's absolutely delighted to do so. Um, we have some friends, um, Brandon and Krista, Krista Robine, Krista Rust now, um, their, their song of their relationship was anything for you. Now, it's got some bad theology in it, okay? Just kind of over, overlook that, okay? But, but that bad theology, you, you, you can get what, he, what, what they mean by that. I'm not sure. How many of you have ever heard this song? Anything for you? Okay, well, let's, let's, let's just, I'm not going to sing it, but let's, let's read this passage. It talks about all oh, that this guy would willingly give up for his girl. My ancestors planted some sequoias by a road. Sequoias, these are the trees that take 500 years to grow. I've driven down that road many times since I've been born. Oh, never have you ever seen such perfect evergreens. But I would chop them all down just for you. I've walked a million miles in a hundred pair of shoes in search for some universal truth. Well, a deity just came to me and handed me a scroll to read. It's like, think about God giving you something to read. And he said, I'll pass it on to you. Anything for you. All this is true. But the best story I could ever tell is the one where I'm growing old with you. I was having rotten luck and nothing went my way till I stumbled on a clearing in the woods. I found a town of leprechauns 
and grabbed each one for wishing on. But I would let them all go just for you. So, so stumbling upon this thing that's like the, the greatest luck. I mean, all these leprechauns at the end of the rainbow, which, you know, they find the pot of gold and this is riches. You got all these. I'd let them go for you because you're worth more than this gold. I've crossed a natural plane and commune with the dead, even talking about going into the, the, the Sheol, like remember the witch at Endor sort of stuff. And people always want some proof. Well, I got some. No one would ever believe my love. I got pictures of them. But I'd throw them away for you. I don't need to prove that. Anything for you. Any, all this is true, but the best story I could ever tell is the one where I'm growing old with you. My scars from a polar bear. My curse is from a witch. I've caught a giant squid in all the seven seas. I've picked up rocks from distant moons. Astronomers will discover soon. But I give them all back just for you. I've got drunk and shot the breeze with kings of far off lands. They showed me all the wealth as far as I could see. I think picture a queen of Sheba coming with Solomon. But their kingdoms seem all shrivelly and, and they cried with jealousy. When I leaned in and told them about you, so these wealthy, rich kings that own everything, they're jealous about you because you're worth so much more than all this stuff. Okay, the best story I could ever tell is growing old with you. I and mean, that's a, you get what I'm saying, right? And I'm sure when I preach chapter 5, verse 3, you'll have, hear another love song from me that has a similar deal. I would sacrifice anything for you. And when you sacrifice anything for your commandments are not a burden. So I, I just ask you, are you following the Lord? Are you obeying the Lord? Are God's commands a burden to you? Because the love of God is to keep His commandments in an unburdensome way. If His commandments are burdensome to you, that's not the love of God. It's chapter 5, verse 3. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. That, that changes Pharisaic covenant obedience-keeping, commandment-keeping to genuine evangelical, right? Jesus-spirited keeping of the commandments. And I just say this. If you're there, you're delighting in God's Word, you're keeping His commandments, you're delighting in that, then you can be assured that you're a Christian. After all, First John isn't written to to, to tear up our assurance. It's written to give us assurance. In fact, that's exactly what he says, this last phrase in verse 6. He says, by this we may know that we are in him. Okay, now there's some discussion about that phrase. Does that phrase refer back to verses 3, 4 in the first half of 5? Or does that verse refer forward like most of the translations say, by this we know that we've come to know him, colon, if we do verse 6? Well, it really doesn't matter because it's, they're both true. By this we know we've come to know him, right? If we keep and obey, if we follow in obedience. And by this we know we've come to know him if, verse 6, we imitate him. So it really doesn't matter. But this verse is plastered in there to say, hey, you can have assurance if you're showing that you know him by obeying and by imitating him. So let's, let's go on. That's our first point. Show that you know him, obey him. Second point, show that you know him, imitate him. Verse 6. Whoever says he abides in light ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, uh, again, this brings us back to the theme of these verses that, that really it shows. is how are you walking and the way you're walking shows whether you know him or not. And I'm changing that to a command. I'm just saying walk, imitate him, 
Now, you can seek to imitate Him without knowing Him. Knowing Him is the, the fruit and the power of imitating Him. But just, just do that. Imitate Him. Or to use the phraseology of verse 6, whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way. He walked. Fundamentally, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Have you played follow the leader before? Kids, I know you, I know you have. Right? Drew, you've played follow the leader many times. Right? I've played follow the leader many times. And, and how do you play follow the leader? There's a leader. And wherever he goes, you follow. Whatever he does, you do. Whatever he says, you say. So if you're on the playground and you go down the slide, if you're following the leader, what are you doing? You're going down the slide. And if you're in a classroom and you're crawling under chairs, and you're following the leader. If the leader crawls under a chair, what are you going to do? You're going to crawl under the chair. And if you're in the gymnasium, and, and the leader says, hey, let's shout for a cheer for joy. Woo! What are you going to do? You're going to... Let's everybody follow, follow me, okay? Woo! Woo! Right? You're going to follow the leader. That's what it means to walk in the same way that, that he walks. And when Jesus called his disciples... That's exactly what he was calling him to. He's he's saying, you come, follow me, and soon you will be doing what I am doing. You're going to walk in my way. Consider when he called Peter and Andrew. They're out fishing. Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You're fishing that. I'm fishing for men. You follow me, and you too will become a fisher of men because I walk, so you are going to walk. Same thing with James and John, out mending their nets. He called them and immediately they left their boat, their father, and they followed him. That's not some, as some anti-lordship salvation people say, some extra call discipleship. Think about this. This is the first time that Jesus ever had contact with these people. Maybe he knew them in Capernaum and things like that. He probably did. But this was really his first call. He says, come, follow me. This wasn't any kind of second tier discipleship. This was calling me. It's the initial call. So how do you do that? You follow Jesus, or, or the, when Matthew was called, he went there. He was sitting in the tax collector's office, just sitting right there. And Jesus passed by. He said, follow me. And so Matthew got up, left all his stuff there and followed Jesus. I mean, people encountered Jesus. He called them to obedience. He called them to walk how he was walking. You remember the, the woman caught in adultery. After all left, Jesus said, does anyone condemn you? No, no one's here. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. See, obedience makes a difference. And following Jesus in righteousness makes a difference too. Remember the would-be disciple who said of Jesus, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first bury my father. And he says what? Let the dead bury the dead. You come now and follow me. He's calling. He's saying, come and follow me. Pursue after me. The call of Jesus is always obedience. It was always following Him, and following means imitation. And I tell you, this is, this is not just gospel dispensation. This is for us as well. Paul said, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So Paul was imitating Christ. He said, to the extent that I do that, you imitate me, because we're all about imitating Jesus. Now for us... We don't have the luxury that John did. Maybe some of his initial readers even had that luxury. I mean, John heard Jesus, saw Jesus, touched Jesus. That's what he says in chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Right? We have seen it. We don't have that privilege, but what do we have? 
we have the Bible, right? Particularly, we have the New Testament. We have the Gospels, which tell all about the story of Jesus. And if we need to walk as he walked, I say these verses are really nothing less than a call to the intense study of the Gospels to say, okay, how is it that Jesus walked? I need to walk as Jesus walked. That's what verse 6 is calling us to do. And and, and then I would encourage you to study the epistles too because the epistles interpret and apply the life of Christ. See how they apply the life of Christ. So, so for instance, let's just practice. Um, Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of bondservant, right? And he became a sacrifice. And, and, And Paul says, the humility of Jesus, you can read about that in the Gospels, the crucifixion account, and he says, you likewise should be humble like Jesus was. That's how it works. Or you can go to the Gospel accounts, like consider the upper room discourse when Jesus, they all got in there, he took the apron of a slave, washed their feet, and said, do you know what I did? He said, you call me teacher and Lord, you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you ought to what? Wash someone else's feet. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also wash another feet. Right? If I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you, we should serve one another, even to the point of washing feet. That's what it means to walk as Jesus walked. How about the same chapter, John 13? A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all people you know, you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. That Jesus says, listen, I love you. It says in John 13, 1, that I, he loved them until the end. He loved them into perfection. And so likewise, we are called to love others in the same way that Jesus loves. So bing, bing, bing. If he says we should love like he loved... You just read through the gospel accounts. You say, how did Jesus love? That's what a believer in Christ who knows him will do. Or or another one, John 15, still upper room discourse. This was the last time he was with his disciples. That's why I put this examples before them. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore remember the world hates you. Now, the, the world hated me, but listen, you're my follower, so the world's going to hate you too. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. <clears throat> they don't know God. But <clears throat> and as Christ brought that message to them, they hated him. So you bring that same message and guess what the people of the world are going to do? There's going to be a hatred and animosity. And that's confirmed. Right? Paul says, Second Timothy 4.12, anyone who wants to live Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You don't live godly in Christ Jesus, you'll be persecuted. And, and these are the things that you look for in the Gospels. You say, oh, <clears throat> that's what Jesus did? I need to imitate that. And that imitation shows that you're a disciple. Now, of course, when you look at Jesus, there's some things we can't imitate, right? We can't imitate at all his, um, his crucifixion for our sins, his atonement for sins, because we're, it, when you think about the crucifixion, we're like the lamb, or he's like the lamb, right? 
and uh, we, we don't become lambs. Though, Colossians 1.24 subtly gets to that, that we fill up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ, fill up the suffering of the world. So there, there's some of that. But we can't imitate the miracles of Jesus. I mean, we can't give sight to the blind. We can't make lame people walk or raise the dead. But what can we imitate? You look at that and you say, okay, I can't do that. But what can I do? I can imitate the same love and compassion that Jesus had. Uh, we can't speak with the wisdom like Jesus spoke. He, he dumbfounded all the Pharisees and Sadducees. You can read about that in Matthew 22. But we can speak the wisdom that he gives us. So we can, we can begin to approximate what he does. We can't cure leprosy. But we sure can't have compassion on those who are down and out in society. Phil read for us of Lazarus, the short tax collector. And Jesus went and dined with a tax collector. And what did the world say? Ah, oh, look at Jesus. He, he dines with sinners. It's so bad. We're called to imitate Jesus in those ways. We're to walk as he walked. That means having compassion on those. And, and Zacchaeus wasn't in Christ when he went. Now, he had the advantage that he converted him, right? And Zacchaeus responded in obedience, right? making rectitude fourfold. But Jesus, Jesus was called a friend of sinners. Why? Mary Magdalene had seven demons pull out her, demon-possessed gal. You think, have you ever thought about the personality of Mary Magdalene? Like, do these seven demons go out and all of a sudden she becomes a a pristine kind of lady, or she's still got some rough edges around her. Mary Magdalene got, Jesus pursued her. Or, or what about when he is being prepared for burial, right? He's sitting there, and, and who's wiping his feet? But a prostitute. The dirty, I don't even want to touch that such a one. Well, maybe there are some that you need to go and touch. You need to walk as he walked. And these are ways that, that Jesus went and permeated society. Which leads to my final illustration. It's going to be a long illustration, but a worthwhile one. Um, this is a classic book written by Charles Sheldon called In His Steps. How many of you read this book? Okay, some of you. How many of you have never heard of this book? I'm looking here. Okay, good. Good, good, good. Um, this was written, uh, I think it was published in uh, 1897 or 1896, something like that. Sold 30, 50 million copies. I don't know how many exactly it sold, but in the tens of millions, so 50 million copies, making it one of the most popularly read books of, of all time, really. I mean, the Bible's way up there, and Pilgrim's Progress is there, and I'm sure there are a bunch of others. But this, this is elevated up there. If you haven't read it, it would be a, a good book to read. It's written about one verse in the Bible. It's not 1 John 2, 6, but it's a passage, a verse that's almost exactly like it. I'll read it for you. 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in His steps. You should follow in His steps. This is walking in the steps of Jesus. It starts out, in chapter 1, in a pastor's home. Henry Maxwell's the pastor. He's the pastor of First Church of Raymond. Raymond is someplace, I think it's probably in Illinois, just kind of 
Chicago might be mentioned in the book, as I remember. But he's, he's somewhere in the small town, um, 500 men in the town, so a couple thousand people uh, in this town. So he's pastoring the first church, it's just a, small, a smaller church is probably what he's, he's pastoring. Um, and the opening chapter sets up Henry Maxwell's in his study, writing his sermon on, uh, on 1 Peter 2.21. For to this you were called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you should walk in his steps. So he's writing, you think about, okay, this is called, okay, we're, we're called to one as a suffering, which is outlined totally expository. I mean, his sermon could have been exactly my sermon. We need to, we need to uh, understand the atonement, like we, we talked about from 1 John 4, verse 8, verses 9 and 10, rather. And, and then well, this is our obedience, how we walk, and we need to walk in these ways because we should follow in his steps. So he's, he's in the midst of, of writing this expository sermon, a great sermon. And while he's, he's up there, his wife had left to do some work someplace, and, and he was there, and he heard a, a knock on the door. So he was second story, and, and he goes over, and he looks out the window, and he sees a tramp at his door. And he goes, kind of like my heart. When I pick up the phone and say, hello, Rock Valley Bible Church, this is Steve. And someone begins to tell me about how they need a bus ticket to get to Minnesota to bury their mother. Okay, that <laughs> happens often. Okay, is people wanting a bus ticket to go and they want money for that. Or they, they're out of gas in their car. And, and my heart just goes, huh, it just sinks. Or as I told you last week, when a, a guy is out here crying and I just like, Oh, man. It was last Friday. I told you about the illustration last week. My heart just, I'm telling you, I'm confessing my sin. My heart just sinks. I'm like, oh. I go out there and kind of deal with this guy. And it, I mean, it, it, it costs me a couple hours of otherwise work that I could be doing. And, and so Henry Maxwell's up there. His heart sinks. He sees the tramp. He opens the door. And almost, they have this quick dialogue back and forth. And the guy says, hey, I'm, I'm out of luck looking for work. You know, I work. He says, no, I'm sorry. You're out of work. But I, I can't do anything for you. Besides, I'm real busy. And shuts the door and kind of goes on. And so then the rest of the Friday afternoon goes on. Wife comes back. His sermon is all written. Oh, what are you going to preach about? Oh, I'm going to preach about the atonement and, and how we should walk in the steps of Jesus. So kind of get there. And then, then it goes into the, the church service. And the church service here is, is beautiful. Okay, so maybe this is a bigger church, though the town is small, because they have a big choir, and they're all in nice choir robes, and they sing these nice songs. And, in fact, he's got these songs. I, I forget but they're singing songs like this, <clears throat> this choir is, to a, a modern adaptation of the hymn. Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Jesus, all my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Crescendos and everything come up. It's just beautiful. Everyone's in their Sunday best. This comes up. And then a soprano sang a solo. Where he leads me, I will follow I will go with him all the way. And then, um, you know, I'm trying to think. Yeah, he preaches a sermon about the atonement, 1 Peter 1.21, about the example that we should lead, we should follow. And, and, then, and then they sang this quartet, this men's quartet afterwards, get up and sing, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being's ransom powers. And so the, the singing is beautiful. This beautiful thing, and the service is so beautiful and lovely because it's so done professionally. And right at that moment, towards the end of the service, I just want to start reading. I'm going to read for maybe about 10 minutes or so because it's, it's, it's rich. 
this, this tramp comes up. And the congregation started like, whoa, what's happening? And as I read this, I want you to illustrate, okay, that happens at Rock Valley Bible Church. I want you to think of that. This tramp comes in the, the back door. And all of a sudden, there's like, look what's happening. And <laughs> I'm, the, I'm Henry Maxwell, okay? Awkward, like, what do we do? How do we do? I, I, don't, I don't know. Here he comes. And uh, before the startled congregation fairly realized what was going on, the man reached the open space in front of the pulpit and turned around facing the people. So maybe he didn't come up the stairs. Maybe he's just standing here, enough for all of you to see. And he says, catch his tone. His tone is wonderful. He says, I've been wondering since I came in here. He says, if, if, I would, if it would be just the thing to say a word at the close of the service, I'm not drunk and I'm not crazy and I'm perfectly harmless. But if I die, as there is every likelihood, I shall in a few days. I want the satisfaction of thinking that I said my say in a place like this and before this sort of crowd. And he just kind of continued on. The pastor's like, what's, what's he talking about? Nobody, nobody move. It's kind of like, okay, what's going to happen next? He says this. He says, I'm not an ordinary tramp, though I don't know any teaching of Jesus that makes one kind of tramp less worthy of saving than another, do you? And then he went on. After coughing painfully, he says, I lost my job 10 months ago. I'm a printer by trade. The new Linotap machines are beautiful specimens of invention, but I know six men who've been killed themselves inside of the year on account of those big machines. Of course, I don't blame the newspapers for getting the machines. Meanwhile, what can a man do? I know I never learned but one trade, and that's all I can ever do. I've tramped all over the country trying to find something. There are a good many others like me, and I'm not complaining, am I? Just stating the facts. But I was wondering as I sat there under the gallery if what you call following Jesus is the same thing as what he taught. I mean, what did he mean when he said, follow me? The minister said, here's the man, he turned about and looked up at the pulpit. He said, that is necessary for the disciple of Jesus to follow his steps. And he said, these steps are obedience, faith, love, and imitation. Okay? His sermon had two of the points that I picked up. He preached what I just preached to you. And this drunk, this tramp comes up and says, the preacher, just listen to what he, what he preached. What does that mean? He, he said, um, but I did not hear him tell you just what he meant that to mean, especially that last step. What, what do you Christians mean by following in the steps of Jesus? I've tramped through this city for three days trying to find a job. And in all that time, I've not had a word of sympathy or comfort, except for your minister here who said he was sorry for me and hoped that I would find a job somewhere. I suppose it's because you get so imposed on by the professional tramp that you've lost your interest in any other sort, which there's a lot of truth to that. All right, That's for another day, though. But I'm not blaming anybody, am I? I'm just stating the facts. Of course, I understand you can't all go out of your way to hunt up jobs for other people like me. I'm not asking you to. But what I feel puzzled about is what is meant by following Jesus. What, what do you mean when you sing, I will go with him, with him all the way? Do you mean that you're suffering and denying yourself and trying to save the lost, suffering humanity, just as I understand that Jesus did? What do you mean by it? I see the ragged edge of things a good deal. I understand there are more than 500 men in this city. In my case, most of them have families. My wife died four months ago. I'm glad she's out of trouble. 
My little girl is staying with a printer's family until I find a job. Somehow I get puzzled when I see so many Christians living in luxury and singing, Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. And remember how my wife died in a tenement in New York City, gasping for air and asking God to take the little girl too. Of course, I don't expect you people can prevent everyone from dying of starvation, lack of proper nourishment and tenement air, but... What does following Jesus mean? I mean, I understand that Christian people own a a good many tenements. A, A member of a church was the owner of one where my wife died, and I have wondered if following Jesus all the way was true in his case. I I heard some people singing at a prayer meeting the other night, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being ransom powers, all my thoughts and all my doings, all my days and all my hours. And, And I kept wondering as I sat outside my steps, just what's meant by this? It seems to me that there's an awful lot of trouble in the world that somehow wouldn't exist if all the people who sing such songs went and lived them out. I suppose I don't understand, but what would Jesus do? Is that what you mean by following in the steps? It seems to me sometimes if people in the big churches had good clothes and nice houses to live in and money to spend for their luxuries and could go away on summer vacations and all that, while the people outside the churches, thousands of them, I mean, die in tenements and walk in the streets for jobs and never have a piano or a picture in the house and grow up in misery and drunkenness. And at that point, his speech was stopped because he lurched and he he gasped and he, he fell over. So I want you to picture that, falling over right here, and I say, this service is now done. That sets up the whole book. And the whole book then is about WWJD, which stands for What Would Jesus Do? In fact, that's the official subtitle of this book, In His Steps, colon, What Would Jesus Do? And, and the man died a few days later, and so then the story in the book basically tells about how a church, a nice church, people with nice clothes and nice choirs and nice building and nice everything, how they dealt with this experience event that they just had to take place. And so the pastor came up the next Sunday and said something to this effect. And I'm totally paraphrasing now, but because I didn't reread the book this week, but he basically said, you know what, that shook me to the core seeing this guy that I didn't, I didn't really care for, didn't, didn't love. And for the next year, I'm promising you that to the best of my ability, by God's grace, I'm going to do nothing but first ask the question, what would Jesus do? And then, with all my grace, and God's grace and ability, I'm going to pray to God and, and say, God, what, what would Jesus do? And I'm going to seek to, resolve, to respond in kind. And so he takes up that pledge on one Sunday and others take up the pledge and then others take up the pledge and it basically, a whole church, and there may have been some objectors, I'm not sure, but they all said, yes, that's what we're going to do for a year. That they are going to do, what would Jesus do? And just, just try to, like, that would maybe lead you to an intense study of the Gospels. If I need to show that I know him by imitating him, once you find out what he is, what would Jesus do? This is the exact question that they were answering, that they were asking here. And so, basically what happened was, revival broke out at the church. 
because people were loving and serving all, all over the ways and people saw, you know, why are you doing that? Oh, because here's this pledge I made at church. Really, what's that about? And people's lives are being changed and people are seeing it and, and people were, were responding to it. And, and the, the church, just God did a new work in the life of the church. And I, I, guess, I guess I just ask you, are you ready for God to do a work at Rock Valley Bible Church? It might start with me, it might start with you. But I, I've been reminded afresh this week in ways you don't even know about in his steps. Am I going to walk in his steps? Am I going to walk that way? Are you going to walk that way? Or is, this, is my message going to be in us another, another, nice, another nice message? Right? He's here, Steve. He ranted and raved for an hour. And okay, we're, we're done. And we go on our way. Or is it going to rip you the course? You picture this guy coming up to the front of our, our church and the same thing happening. Because we can just play, but First John is, is an in-your-face, let's-not-play-games sort of message. Are you following Christ? Are you imitating Christ? Are you obeying Him? Let's pray.